Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 14th, 2023. Last month, I spent an amazing few days in Munich at DLD, and one of the days was dedicated to what we are calling the new circular economy, focusing on food uh, and regenerative agriculture. I did a series of interviews for people who are familiar with the show uh, on regenerative agriculture and the um, circular economy, in particular with my old friend uh, Jan Gisbert Schultz on the transformational promise of regenerative agriculture. I have a particular interest in this. And last week, we also did a show with another very prominent environmentalist, the American John J. Berger, uh, on his new book about how to save the earth. And we talked about regenerative agriculture. And I'm thrilled today that we have a man very much on the front line of regenerative agriculture, a real farmer, not a theorist, not an academic, uh, he has a new book out. It's his first. And as he suggested to me uh, before we went live, his last book, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, One Farm, Six Generations and the Future of Food. Uh, Will Harris is the owner of White Oak Pastures, which uh, is in Georgia, on the border of Georgia, uh, Florida and Alabama. And I'm thrilled he's joining us today. Uh, well, congratulations on the book. Was uh, was writing a book harder than farming? I know farming is a pretty tough business. <clears throat> farming comes very naturally to me. Writing a book did not come naturally, but I was uh, Penguin Random House bought the book before it was written, and they helped find a wonderful uh, author, a young woman from California, who uh, helped me immensely. Could, couldn't have done it without her. Very grateful to her. And by the way, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, the fact that Will, that Penguin Random House picked this up suggests that they know this stuff is becoming a big deal. Tell me about your own story. I know you began as a fairly traditional farmer and in a sense have seen the light of regenerative agriculture. <clears throat> that, that's correct. Uh, in fact, the... To take it a little bit further back, the history of the farm is my great-grandfather came here in 1866 and ran the farm, his career, his son, my granddad ran the farm all of his career. And they ran it in a, in a manner, I mean, we, anecdotally, we know how they farmed in that era. A lot of focus on the land, the animals, and the local little rural economy. My father took over the farm post-World War II, 1945. He was born in 1920. And he is responsible for uh, really changing the farm. The, uh, the changes that I refer to as uh, industrialized, commoditized, and centralized. And my dad did it. I'm glad he did it. Had he not done so, we would not have a farm today. Uh, he was very successful in that endeavor, that transformation. He ran the farm that way successfully all his life. I was born in 1954, uh, went to the University of Georgia, majored in animal husbandry, College of Agriculture. 
And I, all I ever wanted to do was run the farm exactly as my dad had, an industrial monocultural cattle operation. I came home and did that for 20 years and was financially successful. We certainly weren't rich people, but we, I, I made money every year and we lived comfortably. How big is the farm? Um, well, today the farm is uh, the home place here where I'm sitting is 3,200 acres. And we have another 2,000 acres of uh, solar arrays that we manage using livestock impact. So it's uh, about 5,000 acres. And is that that's a pretty small farm, is it, for an industrial operation that your father ran? Uh, well, it's a little bigger than it was when my dad ran it. You know, how big a farm is, is very geo, geologically, geographically, you know, a 500 acre farm in the in New England is huge. A 50,000 acre farm west of the Mississippi is not huge. So that, that's, that's very, here, it's, this farm's a little bigger than average. And then just to remind our, our viewers and listeners, Will, you say that your dad ran the farm on industrial principles. What does that mean? Under his watch, it became a monoculture as opposed to a polyculture. My great-grandfather, grandfather would have farmed a lot of different species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, poultry, etc. Uh, under my dad, it became a monocultural cattle operation and was uh, uh, closely tied to the industry. He, he was uh, occupied a space in the production chain and sold it to the next uh, entity in the chain. And ultimately it wound up being, going to a packer, someone like uh, Tyson or one of the other big packers, and, and then ultimately would be sold to, to retail or food service. Uh, and then um, to remind people in, in terms of the way your dad operated the farm and every practically every other farmer in America at that point, what, what did that mean in terms of the soil? You, you mentioned this difference between uh, the, 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 the monocultural element. Did, did, what was the impact of this on the soil itself? When, the, when my dad industrialized the farm and it became a monocultural cattle operation, it moved from being a very cyclical business to a very linear business. Uh, a monoculture uh, is a production is very linear as opposed to a polyculture, which is very cyclical. Uh, so it, under under uh, my dad's watch, we moved, he moved to a lot of uh, chemical fertilizers, a lot of pesticides, a lot of tillage, which is, is just literally hell on the soil. Uh, the, the, the organic model, the microbial life, the water holding capacity all plummet under that kind of management. But it does so gradually, so you don't notice it so much. But over a 10, 20, 30 year period, the soil is terribly degraded. So in a sense, it's a kind of microcosm of what's happened to the climate and the environment broadly. You don't notice it, but after a while, it becomes self-evident of the damage one is doing. I, I think you're right. And I think that's typically what happens when you move from a cyclical system to a linear system. So the subtitle of your book is One Farm, Six Generations and the Future of Food. Um, 
you're the, I don't know if you're the latest generation, but you're certainly the generation after your father. When did you begin to realize that there were alternatives to the way he was operating the farm? Now, I was literally 20 years in. I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976 and operated the farm the same way my dad did. Very linear, monocultural cattle industry using all the tools. Tools being hormone implants, subtherapeutic antibiotics, uh, pesticides, you know, whatever. <clears throat> 20 years in, I started uh, for a number of reasons rethinking it and decided to move back to, uh, well, you know, really, I, I was not moving back to anything. I was moving away from that system. I, by, when I, a system that I had loved, I became repelled by it. It was just moving away from it with no, no real good plan of where I was going, although it worked out well. You use this word repelled, Will. That's a strong word from a farmer like you. Why was it so, or why is it so repellent? It was repellent because I became uh, increasingly aware of the, the damage I was doing to the animals, to the land, and then later to the local economy. Uh, the scientific tools that, that, that increased production dramatically had un, unintended consequences that were increasingly, suddenly, yet increasingly apparent to me, and, 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 I, and I, I, I disliked them enough to uh, put my, my family's business at risk, although I I admit I didn't realize I, the risk was as great when I first started. Can you tell me about some of those consequences? Explain what they were. The the consequences of the land and the and the animals. Well, what, the, you you know that they repelled you and they became self evident. What were they? What, how did you begin to see what was happening? You know, so so I think it probably happened with me more so earlier on than most producers because I tended to be more heavy-handed than I think most of my peers. I was not more sensitive to the damage. I just was probably guilty of greater damage. If, if, the, if the label instruction said put a paint of the pesticide per acre, I probably put a quart. And if it said give the animal two cc's per hundred pounds of body weight, I probably gave them four cc's per hundred pounds of body weight. So it made it more clear to me, the damages became more clear to me than I think most people, and I didn't like them, so I started moving away from them. And without a real plan on where I was going, I just ceased to use, uh, again, pesticides, pharmaceuticals, uh, confinement, feeding, the other uh, tools to increase production that I'd learned at the University of Georgia and learned from my father and others in the industry. Was, was the most repellent element the impact on the land, on far, on, 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 on the animals, on farmers like yourself, or was it mixed up together? That's a great question, and, uh, and it, it's, it's interesting how that happened. The first uh, kind of canary in the coal mine for me was the animals. I, I remember 
loading a load of cattle to ship to the Midwest one morning, and I had done it hundreds of times in my life. But we loaded about 100, 500-pound calves on a double-deck truck, the ones on the top urinating and defecating on the ones on the bottom. And those calves were going to be on that truck for about 30 hours without food or water or rest in that circumstance to go to Kansas or Nebraska or wherever I was shipping them that day. I don't remember. And it had never bothered me until that day. And somehow that day, it just seemed very wrong to me. And I decided to not do it anymore. So the animal welfare was kind of the first the first canary in the coal mine. But very quickly after that, I guess I started thinking about it more. And the impact on the land was increasingly troublesome for me. The use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides and tillage. So I, I chose to, I ceased to do that. And then much later, the impact on the community hit home. Uh, I never thought that I could, uh, I, I, I knew from, from a very early age that my local little rural community, Bluffton, Georgia, I'm sitting in the middle of it right now, was, was dying, decaying economically. I knew that, everybody knew that. But I never dreamt I could do anything about it and didn't try to do anything about it. But when I changed the management of the land and the animals, I wound up hiring a lot of people and changing a lot of things, and the town came alive. I, I can remember, I can remember a visitor saying, "This is a nice little town you've got here." And I looked around. I said, "You know, it is a nice little town, but it hadn't been, and it was because of the, you know, today we've got 170 or 80 employees." And I'm not really, I'm not, we're the largest employer in the county. I'm not proud of what I pay my people, but it's more than the county. This is a very poor county. It's well above the county average. And it, it has had a significant economic impact. Bluffton, Georgia has changed from a, a dying little ghost town to a very nice little community. I mean, it's, it's very small, but it's nice. We are speaking with Will Harris, the author of A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, a new book out, very important new book, written by a real farmer, not some academic who spent a few hours or days or months in the countryside. Here's a guy who grew up, inherited the farm from his father, and changed the nature of that farm. So, Will, let's get into the details. What did you begin to change? What is this bold return to giving a damn? So what I began to change is just leaving off the procedures that were displeasing to me. Uh, I, I ceased to confinement feed or, or high carbohydrate, unnatural diet of grain and other, other products that animals don't, uh, ruminants would not normally eat, cattle being ruminants. Uh, I ceased to use the, the pharmaceuticals, the uh, hormone implants, uh, the, uh, the sub-therapeutic antibiotics. I turned the cattle out to graze on the land uh, exclusively instead of just seasonally. Well, a, lot, a lot of changes. And I, I did that without any real 
uh, foresight into how I was going to uh, market them and recover the increased cost. When you raise animals that way, when you raise cattle that way, it's at a higher cost per pound. There, there are reasons why those those scientific uh, uh, products are used, procedures are used. So when you give it, when you give up using them, you lose that advantage. So we, I did that for a while, and I made less money than I had previously, but it was okay. We were still profitable, and I could still make it for a while, but. I needed to do better, and, and I was very, very fortunate, blessed in the timing because uh, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and people were just starting to talk about grass-fed beef, and I was uh, inadvertently producing grass-fed beef. So we, we uh, started marketing it. I always had sold some beef, but we started doing it on a bigger scale, and I actually sold Whole Foods Market and Publix, the first grass-fed beef that they ever marketed as uh, grass-fed beef. So it was, uh, the timing was just very, very fortunate for me. And we did pretty well uh, for a, a while. It, that, that changed, but uh, there was, we had some, some really good years. You, you use this term grass-fed beef, grass-fed gut, I think you sell grass-fed goat, grass-fed lamb, terms are used, thrown around. Well, people talk about organic farming, and then there's this regenerative farming. What terms are you comfortable with, or, or should we get beyond all the jargon and just focus on uh, giving a damn, as you say in your title of your book? We can talk a lot about about certifications and they, 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 they have importance, but I'm really uh, far more pro regional uh, marketing and having or having customers who know where they're buying their food, how the food's produced and, 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 and having uh, something of a relationship with the provider. Uh, we, we, we sell, uh, we, we, uh, so in, in the process of changing this farm, I had to build my own processing and that was a very expensive, uh, endeavor and we need to sell 25 or maybe more million dollars worth of product a year. And we do, and that's good, but we ship it to 48 States and that's not good. I really want food to be local. I think it's very, I think that when we, uh, when the, the food industry evolved into these huge multinational systems, we lost a lot. And I think that uh, I, what I want to be is a regional supplier. I've got to sell a certain amount of stuff. Currently I ship to 48 states to do it. My goal is to be much more regional. And I want to help other people be regional in, in their production. Will Harris wants food to be local. And that's one of the things that his new book is about. Um, a bold return to giving a damn. One farm, six generations, and the future of food. I want to thank our sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a wonderful new publication. Actually, all our guests, including Will, will get annual subscriptions. I'm going to run a short ad, and then I want to talk more to Will Harris about 
the principles of this new agriculture and what we as consumers, meat eaters, uh, can do to help him. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Will Harris, uh, who has a wonderful new book out, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, One Farm, Six Generations, and the Future of Food. Uh, Will, before the break, you noted that you were one of the first, if not the first, farms to sell to Whole Foods, uh, grass-fed beef and lamb and pork and no doubt turkey for Thanksgiving. A lot of people will be thinking to themselves, this is all very well, but I can't afford that kind of meat. I can't afford to pay Whole Foods prices. Do we as consumers, Will, do we need to grow up and take responsibility? You've clearly taken responsibility for the land and for your farm. Does everyone need to recognize that cheap food is deeply problematic? I think that consumers need to realize that cheap food is really not cheap. Uh, costs have been shunted off to other outside the system, but the food is not cheap. You know, I can I can talk about this all day, but there's a there's a dead the Gulf of Mexico is about 80 miles that way. And, and he's a, pointing for people listening. He's pointing rightwards. I'm, I'm pointing to the south. Uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico is about 80 miles south of me. And there was a thriving oyster industry down there all my life, even though I'm 80 miles in. Oyster trucks came once a week and brought oysters to the uh, seafood market in Blakely, Georgia, 12 miles from here, and we, we ate oysters. Uh, there's a moratorium on oystering in the Gulf of Mexico. There, no, no, oyster, no oystering is going on. And it's because there's a dead zone that's a result of the chemical fertilizer and pesticides that has got rushed from our farmland down the Gulf, down the Chattahoochee River, to the Gulf of Mexico and destroying the oysters, oyster beds. So that is a cost that industrial agriculture is incurring upon society, but neither the farmer nor the pesticide company nor the chemical, uh, the plant food company or the chemical company are absorbing it. We all are. And I can go on and on with a number of different costs that this really cheap industrially produced food uh, is, is, is bringing to, to all of us. And, and they're not being the cost of, bearing the cost of it. We all are. So what you're saying is when people buy cheap food, they need to recognize that someone's paying for it somehow, future generations. What about people who don't have a lot of money, who can't afford whole food prices? What's your advice to them? And you know, I, I am aware of that, and I'm concerned about it. But now let's be clear. I'm a farmer. I'm not a social economist. I'm not, I'll fix the food production problem 
some of you have to fix uh, financial inequity, economic inequity. I can't, I can't fix that. It, it, I, I acknowledge that people can't afford food that's raised properly. And I acknowledge that something needs to be done about it. But that's, that's outside my field of expertise. Is there a role of government here, Will? Should the government be doing more to support guys like you and to be perhaps taxing these large-scale productions to underline the fact that cheap food isn't really cheap, that someone is paying for this ultimately? So, you know, I, I, I really make it a point to not be a hypocrite. Uh, but in the area of government payments, I am a hypocrite. You know, I rail against government payments, but to the extent I can qualify for them, I accept them. I don't, I don't like that in myself, but it's the way it is. I do that to survive. And what I'm telling you with that is I really don't want us, we regenerative farmers, to be dependent upon uh, federal government, any government uh, uh, handicap uh, handouts. But I, we compete against industrially produced commodity food that is dependent upon uh, those handouts. So I just want the playing field level. And it, I'm, I'm okay with none of us getting payments. I won't get payments. My competition who's commodity food doesn't get payments. That's fine. We're good. But they get payments, so I sign up for the payments. I just don't get as much as they do. It's, it's geared... Uh, more for those commodity crops. Is there a movement you call yourself a regenerative farmer? I used to actually have a show called uh, Re Regenerate Forum. We had a number of other farmers on the show. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Joel Salatin, for example, another of, um, and then another woman in California, uh, Mimi Castell, who has a regenerative what. Uh, uh, vineyards in, in 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 oregon do you feel part of a movement you're clearly one of the pioneers of this i'm sure you're familiar with the work of joel salatin and other innovative farmers i am and there, there is a network a very loose network of those of us who are, have, are part of this movement and have been for a, a decade or two or three uh, Sadly, there are, there's, there are less of us, not more of us. I think that uh, th there are, there are uh, uh, certain government programs that have made it really hard on us to uh, promote, expand what we do. I'll give you one example. Uh, when I started marketing my uh, calves as, as grass-fed cattle back in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, grass-fed cattle could not be imported without being listed as imported. They, they couldn't they couldn't claim it was a product of the USA. That law changed in the mid in 2005 or six. I'm not sure exactly when, but probably 2006. So that today. Uh, Grass-fed beef can be imported from 20 different countries, uh, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Uruguay being the three biggest, and it can be marketed in this country as product of the USA. 
brought in from Uruguay, New Zealand, Australia, but the, the on the package it says legally product of the USA. And that's because the country of origin labeling cha rules changed so that if, if value is added in this country, it becomes a product of the USA. The fact it was born, raised, and slaughtered in Uruguay doesn't stop it from being a product of the USA. And that is, you know, I, mean, I can't prove it, but there's no doubt in my mind that was done by the big international beef companies to take advantage of the little grass-fed beef market that some of us have fostered here. What's the role then of stores, particularly the, the large stores, the, the Safeways of the world? You deal with Whole Foods, which is now, of course, owned by Amazon. Uh, do they have a, a responsibility to ensure that food can be local? We all go to our stores and they promise us local, particularly local pro produce, uh, fruit and vegetables. Should stores be doing more in your view? You know, I really don't know how to make that call. I, I have found that there are incredible differences in the personalities of stores. Uh, Publix, for example, was uh, one of my first customers. Publix and Whole Foods, my first two customers. Publix has sold my, they have ordered beef from me every single week for over 20 years. And they make uh, no claims whatsoever beyond what I put on my package. They, they put it out there. They price it with the margin they think they need. And people will either buy it or not. And they've been very clear to me that as long as they sell, as it meets certain uh, criteria with them, they'll continue to sell my product. If it doesn't, they won't sell it anymore. It's, it's, it's hard ball. It's been very fair ball. My experience with Whole Foods was very different. Uh, they were my first first customer, biggest customer. Uh, they were they they and it was a great relationship. They changed incredibly, uh, probably about the time of the Amazon sale, and it and we 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 don't do business with them anymore. We just it just didn't work anymore for a number of reasons. So my my point in that is these grocery companies and I'm sure food service companies as well, have very different personalities, and it's hard to make neoclassicist sweeping statements about how they are. You noted earlier, Will, you're not crazy about the government, but you have to live with it, and we all have to live with politics for better or worse. You're part of the world, of course. Georgia is a place of great historical controversy uh, on, on, on the race front in particular. Is there a, a broader political angle here in terms of white and black farmers? I, I I don't think so. If you're asking me, is there such a thing as racial prejudice? Or yeah, there is. No, right? that wasn't my question. Yeah. I, I, I mean, more the way in which perhaps uh, white and black farmers can work together within a movement like this for both uh, food justice and empowering smaller producers and farmers? You know, I guess I just don't see much racial ramifications in this. It, uh, this movement from industrial commodity production to uh, value-added uh, uh, food with a name on it is, I, I think, is pretty non-racial. I, 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 
I don't know how you put how how you put that slant on it either way. Uh, you know, we you know, we certainly have all the the problems with prejudice or those kinds of things that that any other group has, but I I don't see this as falling into that category. Well, let's end with the future of food. I mean, we, we've talked politics, we've talked chemicals, we've talked scale, but let's remind people of ultimately what this is about, which is the taste of food. We've all, or I hope most of us have tasted um, properly farmed or responsibly farmed meat, whatever you want to call it, regeneratively farmed meat. And there is an enormous difference in, in, in the quality of this product, isn't there? I think so. And, uh, you know, there's so many varied considerations about why people should eat what they eat. You know, if, if it's all about how something tastes, you, know, you can take all kinds of poisons and make it taste really, really good. If it's about how cheaply you can do it, there's so many ways that you can make the actual purchase price of the food obscenely cheap. If you, if you don't recognize the damage it's causing elsewhere, from a health perspective, the same way. Probably the hardest thing is, is what you brought up is, is, is flavor, the culinary side of it. You know, so often it's what you get used to. But, uh, you know, I think that our, when, I, when I'm selling our product, I, I seldom talk much about uh, flavor, taste, uh, those kinds of things, because it's so subject to personal decision. You know, what, I, what we talk about is the, the impact on the environment, the welfare of the animals, and the impact on the economy of rural America. Those are things that are just inarguable, and those are things that I am expert in. I'm not a culinary expert, but I, I know about the, the land, the animals, and the local rural economy. 